if there's one thing I could distill my entire experience of sport and athletes down to, it's those two words. Everyone's different. And what works for me won't work for you. What works for you won't work for somebody else. And it's just about figuring out what does work for you. Welcome to the Your Data Driven Podcast. If you like this podcast, be sure to visit our website at yourdatadriven.com for more useful help and advice on setting up your race car, mastering data analysis, and driving faster. Welcome to episode 34. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Annie Veron to the show. Annie is a two-time Olympian and multiple world champion rower. We discuss what you can learn from someone who has competed at the highest level, how to find a balance between competition and emulation of your peers, and one or two ways you can look at to benefit from her experience and bring that back into your own motorsport. There are more parallels between rowing and racing than you might appear on the surface. In Annie's case, that starts with her brother who actually used to work in Formula One. So, as ever, sit back, grab a pen, grab a coffee, and let's hear what Annie has to say. Uh, well, hello, Annie. Hello, Samir. Look, well, hello, and thank you so much for, for joining us on the show. An athlete with a different background to motor racing from the world of rowing, but also business and coaching. So it's going to be really interesting to find out a bit more about you today. The audience listening are motorsports people. And so what we try and do is work towards like one or two takeaways that they can go and apply and think, actually, yeah, I hadn't thought about this in that way before. And, you know, that's going to, I'll try that. I'll try that. Or that was a different way of thinking about a problem that I have that will really make a difference to their enjoyment, their fun, and, and if they can beat their, their performance. So hopefully we'll find some common ground. But how, so how does that sound to you? Sounds fine. Should I admit at this point that I drive a Skoda? <laughs> or should I, keep that, should I keep that to myself? I don't think that's a joke anymore. When we were little, that was that was a joke, wasn't it? You know, the hand warmer thing. And, and... Yeah, people still think it's funny that we have a family of Skodas, but we're proud. <laughs> well, if, if that sounds good, then we'll, we'll, we'll give that a go. How does that sound? Sounds great. First, before we get into any of the sort of performing as an athlete, at Olympics and World Championships and stuff like that. Let's tell us, a, yeah, tell us a bit more about you and your background. And I think you've got some interest in motor racing as well. So I have. So my brother worked for uh, Minardi for a few years after he graduated, which for a small team at that point, one of the smallest budgets actually was an amazing experience for a, for a young bloke. You know, you go in and you're expected to do a hundred different tasks as opposed to going to a bigger team where there's more kudos, but you're given one very narrow task. So, yeah, I guess I, my early introduction to, to F1 was following his, his career for a few years. He was at Minardi. And then I'm sure like most people, I've loved Drive to Survive on Netflix, which has just been such an amazing insight into F1. And I suppose it's, it's made me really reflect on the differences between such a highly technological sport such as Formula One with all the data and analysis and you know, every single detail of the design of the car, to rowing, where the athlete is front and centre. And I think to ever imply that you could improve your, your materials and your, your boat and your equipment in order to improve your speed was almost seen as, well, you're just trying to take the easy option out. You want to get better, you just train harder. 
So to have that attitude, it's it's such a different attitude to Formula One, where almost the car is front and centre and the driver is, is a part of that. So my background is in rowing. So I, I took up rowing at about 17 as a kid at school and then was lucky enough to go to Cambridge University where rowing is like a religion. Everyone rows there. It's a really, really big sports, one of the biggest sports in the university. Has the most uh, the best social life and attracts tall men, which which was something I was quite interested in <laughs> at, at, that, at that point. So a good way, a good way to beat tall men. And then I was lucky enough to go on to the British rowing team for, for nine years, eight of which were I was a full-time professional. So I went to six world championships, one under 23 world championships, and then two Olympic Games, Beijing 2008 and London 2012. And I finished my career as a two-time world champion, world silver medalist and Olympic silver medalist in Beijing 2008. Wow, can we just, no, no, you just, you're right, sorry, just, let's just have a moment about that. Right? You sort of talk about it. Obviously, you've, you've said this story before, right? But you talk about it, it's just like, it's like, yeah, and I went to the shops and I bought some, you know, some bread and some milk and, uh, you know, it's that kind of, that kind of way, that presentation you're doing it. But you, you'll just take a step back and like, that's pretty special. <laughs> it, it's all relative to the world you live in, isn't it? You know, I live in a world where I know a lot of people who won far more medals than I did. So to an extent, you're always thinking, well, yeah, you know, I was a decent enough athlete, but I wasn't an outstanding athlete like all these other people that I know quite well. So I think it's all relative to your expectations as well, isn't it? Well, I think I think that's the first thing, isn't it? It transcends with everything to do with what we're going to talk about today in terms of motorsport or, or rowing or any sport, really, is, is, is about your expectations. And, you know, one of the things that we've dived in, and we straight away, sorry, but one of the things that, that is interesting is that you see a lot of glam faces around the paddock even at an amateur level and we're doing this for fun and yet you know there can be only one winner or someone seems to be winning more often or we're frustrated because we're not d- delivering the performance we believe that is in us for some reason um so you're right everything's relative in that sense even though we're we're doing something that a lot of people would give their eye teeth for but I think it, it is all relative to your expectations, isn't it? I mean, I've got my father-in-law as an absolutely desperately keen over 60s triathlete, and it means so much to him, and it almost means more than it, it did to me as a, when I was a <laughs> professional. And that's not to say that reflects badly on either of us. It's just, you know, at that point in your life, at that point in your world, that's the most important thing to you. So if that's the thing you put all your energies into, whether for me it was day-to-day training, for him it's, you know, the Saturday morning 10K, then that's kind of what sport is for, isn't it? Sport is always there for you, whatever level, whether you're a you know 14-year-old just keen tennis player or a, a 65-year-old triathlete or a you know 25-year-old Olympian. It sport can play that different role in your life. And now I'm I'm a sports fan, I'm a huge sports fan, and I've been following, unfortunately, following the ashes quite closely. For somebody with quite a few Australian friends as well, it's not been a particularly enjoyable experience but you know I'm almost more into that than I was into rowing when I was doing it because for now this is just a real interest for me so I think it's all relative yeah to your expectations and and what you want out of your sport. So what would you tell yourself now looking like if you could go back and tell yourself your past self I mean it might be slightly different because it's professional versus versus hobby let's call it even though you're taking, they're both taken very seriously. I think on the, I suppose the angle I'm coming from is, is around the word fun. And, mm. and at what point 
does performance and results outweigh the fun and and that kind of thing? And does it affect performance as well? You know, there's that there's that element to it. I mean, is there any advice you'd give your past self about that that would be you know, people who are you know going out to the paddock? Uh, going racing or whatever this year and find themselves a bit frustrated they go actually yeah and he suggested that <laughs> I think the thing is Samir I, I would probably say to you the same answer that most people would give their 20 something year old self which is just enjoy it more relax take the pressure off yourself but in the next sentence I'm going to say but that's not me you know you can't suddenly force yourself to be someone you're not you know I am someone who's always been quite intense quite focused and if I do something I want to be good at it. You know, I don't want to take it lightly. You know, I'm now wrestling with parenting. I've got two young children. And do you know what? I want to be, I want to be a good parent. I'm not just going to take things lightly. I, I want to invest myself in it. So although part of me would say, oh, this is the advice I give my younger self. Well, my younger self was, was me. And you can't significantly change what you're doing. And of course, and I think this is one of the great things about team sports. You do see that little diversity of people, you know, around the paddock, in your words, and around the you know, changing rooms in, in, in my life, you do see that huge diversity of people with different values, different expectations of their sport. You've got people who came into it a little bit later and really saw this as, oh, this is such a gift. I've got this opportunity that I didn't think I'd have to now go to the Olympics. And people who have been, you know, one of the best in the world since they were 14. And do you know what? Everyone has that different approach to their sport. And some people are very relaxed about it. But in fact, yeah, some of the best people that I knew were very relaxed about it. Some of the other very best people I know weren't relaxed about it at all because I think everyone's different. And, and I think if there's one thing I could distill my entire experience of sport and athletes down to, it's those two words everyone's different. And what works for me won't work for you. What works for you won't work for somebody else. And it's just about figuring out what does work for you. I think, well, I'm going to sort of throw this back to you in a way because I, I kind of I kind of get that. And you could, you could argue that. It's sitting on the fence a bit, right? But what it actually saying, if you dig underneath that, is it's about acceptance of yourself. Mm, for sure, yeah. And it's got, got a bit deep, hasn't it, straight away? But anyway, um, <laughs> but it's about, it is about that. It's about acceptance of yourself and, and saying, like, well, I'm not trying to be someone else. I see these other people doing their own thing, and maybe I, I just need to accept that I'm different and I'm going to perform differently or better if I'm more that way. And not like them, you know. You know what I mean? There's an acceptance bit in there that that will enable you to have more fun, I suppose. I, I think there is, and I think that applies not only to your, I guess your your overall view of, of your sport and what you want to achieve from it and where it sits within your life, but also I think day to day, you know, the eve of a big race, you could walk around the, the changing room, people sitting there preparing for their, their world championship race or their Olympic race or whatever it was. And actually, there'd be some people sitting there, headphones in, you know, pop music, pounding out. Some people be sitting there just biting their nails, occasionally vomiting into a bucket. Some people sitting there, chilled as you like, you know, doing a crossword, chatting to their friends, potentially chatting to their opponents. You know, my approach was always just to, just to stay grounded, try and stay really relaxed, you know, not my headphones in, not my sunglasses on, just to see really kind of in the moment, really try and be quite chilled with it. So I think your approach day to day, you know, dealing with pressure, dealing with the relentlessness of training, which in rowing, you know, is it's a really high volume sport. It is quite relentless. And just how you, you manage yourself day to day. I think that all comes back to just understanding yourself. And I think that was one of the mistakes I made early in my career. I was lucky enough to come onto the rowing team when 
at a time when the team was really successful and there were some incredibly talented women involved. And there was a group of, of six women who'd just come back to the Olympics, all with medals for the first time, you know, all at that stand. You know, you walk into a changing room with these girls or you share a boat with them and you're like, Jesus, these are people who are some of the best in the world, which as a young athlete is great because you know all you need to be is as good as the people in the room with you. You're not trying to find something that you don't know where what it is or where it exists. You just look around and say, well, this is the standard. The standard I need to hit with medals is right here, you know, lifting weights next to me. So if I can lift the same weights as her, that's great. But I think the mistake I made was almost to try and emulate those people around me too much. Say, right, I need to, you know, do my recovery as well as she does. I need to be focused in my training as much as she is. I need to attack my, you know, my intensity sessions as, as much as she does. I need to be as good a team player as, as she is. I need to be as good a technical player as she is. And eventually you just lose sight of who you are and you're almost trying to hang yourself and other people all the time, which, which is great in the short term when you're a young athlete, you're finding your feet. But there comes a point where you almost just draw a line and say, well, that's great. This is me. What can I do? Absolutely. And, and I suppose you, you said it much more eloquently than me, <laughs> but that's basically what I was trying to imply. And it's, it's that balancing act between the competition because you wouldn't be better almost than a match and beat them in every, on all those different things. But at the same time, making sure that you, you, you don't lose sight of, of, of you and, and your own bit because you're not trying to be different to them. Well, them. You're not trying, you can't be them. You can only be you. So. Exactly, exactly. And I think this is one of the things, it was, it was that real interest in psychology that led me then to, to write the book that I did after I retired, which is all about the psychology of elite sport. And really just to understand, okay, you've got these hundred different approaches to sport. You know, you've got some people who are super competitive and, you know, couldn't even lose a, I don't know, who can clean their boat the quickest race to people who didn't seem to have a competitive bone in their body, but were still extremely good at what they did. So if you've got all these different approaches, you know, how does that function? How does that work? And that was what led me to write my book, Mind Games, in 2018. I was going to say, yeah, give us the title of your book, because people may not have heard of it. I'll certainly put a link down below. It's a fascinating insight, I think, into that into that world that you've experienced, and I think because you're now bringing that into into the world of business, I think. Exactly. So the, the book is called Mind Games: Determination, Doubt, and Lucky Socks: An Insider's Guide to the Psychology of Elite Athletes, which I know is too long, but we couldn't agree on a shorter version. <laughs> <laughs> it's published by Bloomsbury. Believe me, I, I wrote I, my. I've got a course called the. Complete Beginner's Guide to Motorsport Data Analysis, which felt good at the time. And now I, every single time I do anything with like the title, I'm just like, why can I make that short? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Exactly, exactly. So, yeah, the book really aims to lift the lid on how elite athletes think and function and how they do things like channeling in their competitiveness, how they develop confidence, the mistakes, the mistakes they make along the way, how they do teamwork, how they get ready to perform on the eve of big events. And also... The aftermath, you know, once it's all said and done, you know, the tide's gone out, everyone's gone home. How do you reconcile yourself with success or with defeat? You know, once you've retired and you've got that list of achievements against your name and there aren't going to be any more in, in your chosen sport. You know, that's it. The ship has sailed. Other people will take your place. How do you feel about that? You know, how do you reconcile yourself with the fact that perhaps you didn't quite achieve what you thought you were capable of? Or maybe you over overachieved what you thought you were capable of. You know, how do you feel about it now? So... It was a pretty unbelievably interesting experience to draw on the experiences of loads of other people and get them to 
kind of open up their hearts to me about how they feel about their sport. But yeah, I mean, if I could just sell a whole book into one, into one phrase, it would be everyone's different. Yeah, I think that's the theme. That's the theme for today, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And I think that one of the opening questions I try to answer, I'd be really interesting, interested to know if your listeners have had a similar experience in their own lives, is I set up the question of, that we're all chickens or pigs with sport. So they people talk about chickens or pigs. Chickens or pigs, yes. Yeah. So you talk about a, a plate of bacon and eggs, and you would say the the pigs involved. Sorry, that the chickens involved, but the pig is committed. So I would say, okay. So how come we all know really talented people at sport as kids? How come some of them were chickens? Some of them were involved, weren't that bothered about it. Some of us are pigs. Some of, some of us are really committed to what we're doing. So what's the one of the key moments in people's lives that separate us into People who are involved in sport and love it, but it hasn't really gripped them, to people who are absolutely committed to being the best they could be. And I don't I don't think there's a simple answer to it, but read my books by that rule. <laughs> yeah, it's certainly I mean you've got me thinking. Again, it's a very personal it's a very personal everyone's gonna have their own opinion on that. Of course they are. Yeah, there's a lot there. There's upbringing, there's family, there's schools, there's just the opportunities you had. And I guess I look back to my life and one of my best friends at school. We were like the two sporty girls. You know, we were generally the best at sport in our primary school and our secondary school. And we both laugh about it now. It was almost each other that really drove each of us on because it was almost got to the point where we were like, we don't care if we win or lose this match. We don't care, you know, whoever we're playing. We only care about beating each other. And we always, obviously, always had to be on separate school teams because we were the two standout <laughs> people at whatever the sport was, you know, netball, hockey, athletics, swimming, whatever. And it was always like, I just don't want to compete against Sarah. I don't mind who I compete against, but please not her. And I think we were, you know, without her, I don't know if another the flame would have been lit in me as much. And you know, she says the same. So and I'm sure lots of people are probably nodding, an older sibling, you know, perhaps a twin, perhaps a younger sibling, perhaps a best friend, perhaps a you know, competitive parent, whoever it is. You know, there's got to be someone there perhaps kicking you on in those early years. Yeah. I mean, obviously, I, I haven't got anywhere near that fire in me. Otherwise, it would be a different conversation we'd be having from my perspective. But I certainly, I race myself as a hobby. And it often comes out. So when I'm in the paddock with the other guys and, and girls who I race with, it's sort of, it's like a non-conversation. No one asks, why, why are you here? But when you're not there my wider circle of friends aren't really into motorsport. So they, they kind of go like, why are you doing that? <laughs> kind of thing. It's like, and it's it's not always obvious to be able to answer it. I think my personal view or my personal experience was that I, I was good at it and I wasn't the naturally sporty person at school or, or I didn't find that super easy. I, I went to a school that was very big on football or soccer for our American listeners. And, um, I wasn't the best at soccer. I was always the last to be picked, you know, those awful kind of pick your team from the group things. And, um, but you put me in a go-kart and I beat everyone. And I was like, well, maybe that's it. So, so I can't tell you why. But it's the thing for some people it is, you know, it's that sibling rivalry for some people it is being in a really great team. Some people being in a really terrible team. And, and like you've just described some people, it is just finding their sport. And once you find your sport, once you've you know found that kind of metaphorical pair of jeans, it's just right. And you're like, this is me. I'm comfortable. This is my world. You know, for some people, that's the thing that, that sets them free. I'm going to pick you up on a couple of those things that you mentioned about from your book. So nerves and managing yeah. nerves. So this is something that everyone listening will suffer from at some point. And I can say this more confidently now, having had some 
top level racing drivers to the amateur yeah. racing drivers and talking to all of the, every, everyone and people who don't even race who just go for you know a track day or, or something something that that involves taking them outside of their comfort zone in a, in a thing that they're super excited about but also nervous beforehand so have you got any tips or methods that you you've seen work yeah i mean that's probably the biggest thing people are interested in both from the book and just in in my personal rowing experiences oh for sure because like you said everyone gets nervous and everyone remembers that feeling of i don't know standing outside your a-level exam waiting to go in or university interview whatever everyone has those massive moments where they are absolutely paralyzed with fear and people say oh do you feel like that when you go to the olympics and you're like yeah but 10 times worse (laughs) (laughs) i mean it's the olympic games is it nerve-wracking of course it's nerve-wracking and i suppose the thing that i used to do try and do to myself is try and separate pressure and stress okay pressure's there pressure's real of course there's pressure it's the olympic games or you know, it's your exam or your school sports day or whatever it is. You know, pressure is real. You can't pretend pressure isn't real. But then stress is how you respond to it. And you can even respond in a, you know, in a terrified, knees knocking, feet, legs feeling like jelly way. Or you can try and find a way to get that pressure to, and that anxiety to build you up and make you excited. And it's such a fine balance between excited anxiety and terrified I'm about to collapse and pass out anxiety. And everyone will know that feeling of this is, you know, I mean, I'm not married, but I can imagine probably a wedding day is probably quite similar, that you have that slight feeling of terror, but also this is the best day of my life. And I mean, gosh, I'm now I've got kids. I just think, what was it like for my parents? You know, <laughs> what I think about now is, you know, if I remember my big races, I almost don't remember my experience. I now just put myself in the stands and you've got my mum and dad watching me. Oh my God, it must have been so awful for them because they're just watching it. And I, I don't really know if any of my five of my boys show any interest in sport. I'm going to be like, no, you are not doing sport. I can't cope with stress. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, so going back to stress. So, yes, yeah, stress is your response to it, and I think there's loads of different spectrums of ways of dealing with it. And I've already described. You know, you're sitting there in the change room, and there's there's you know there's countless different ways that athletes will, will manage that stress. From some people see like doesn't accept them, affect them at all. Some people, you know, consciously try to channel it into almost this like rage response. They're ready to explode with you know with power on the start line when the, when the start gun goes. And really, it's just finding what's what's your response. And I think in in my the early part of my career, I thought that I should be feeling really fired up for it. You know, I should be feeling like that start line. I'm ready to you know tear down walls and you know rip the heads off my opponents. That's what I should feel like. I guess after a number of races where I, I was just so tense, I couldn't actually perform properly, I realised, you know, for me, that's not right. You know, for other people, sure, but for me, no. So I tried to you know, consciously imagine a spectrum of reactions where by one end was that, you know, real angry kind of rage response. And the other end was just almost like it was just a Sunday morning run. What's the big deal? Let's just totally chill out about this. And then I guess I went through about a year of trying to consciously put myself in different places on that spectrum. Every time we had a really big test on the own team, you know, we do a race or a you know, test on the own machines or an you know, internal trial, whatever it was. And eventually I found I, that what was right for me was way more over to the relaxed side. So way more over to the side of, you know, feeling like you're sitting there smoking a metaphorical cigarette without a care in the world. And so I would consciously try to put myself in that place and I would talk to my teammates and I would, you know, self-talk and I would write things down, just 
just to check in with myself. Okay, am I in the right place in that spectrum? Is my is my headspace in the right place right now? If it's not, if I'm too wound up or I'm too relaxed, okay, shift the dial a bit. You know, give yourself the right messages. But it was very, very much a conscious thing of warming up my brain in the same way as I would warm up my body. So I've got I've got two questions for you on that. One's music, and one's coaching. So the music one is interesting in the sense of everyone likes music not everyone likes the same music and music has a kind of an emotional impact on us that can change our our mood as it were so did he did he ever use music to help you with that well to be honest i used to listen to a lot of radio four podcasts which probably puts me in quite a small minority. But, <laughs> but again, yeah, I, I tried music. And you know what? Just it, I found it too distracting. Yeah. I felt like it wasn't always pitched the right level, whereas I would listen to a few podcasts and that would almost whisk me away and, and, and chill me out and just calm me down. And then, you know, with a few hours to go, like my headphones are gone, my sunglasses are gone, I've got nothing to separate me from the reality of the race. And at that point, I'm not really thinking about too much at all apart from right, what are my first three Strokes look like after the blocks, what's my next 100 metres looks like, what my next 250 look like. I'm sure most of the Formula One drivers, you know, listen to the my podcast before they're... I'm sure. Now that's hello, available. Hello, Lewis. Hello, yeah. Lewis. Hello, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> or, or any professional driver would benefit. No, 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 no. But, so go on, so tell us about coaching there, because that's, that's something that you may not be aware of, but that isn't or hasn't traditionally been very prevalent in motorsport for some historic and or unknown reasons, to be honest. And, and it's a bit, so, so when I started working in sport, it was quite interesting for me to sort of study that relationship because people didn't question the fact you had a coach. In fact, depending on your sport, you may have multiple coaches for different aspects of that sport. But in, in racing, we, it, we do have coaches now, but it's not normal. And certainly at an amateur level, there aren't, Oh, really it, it's not like oh, who's your coach it's kind of like oh you've got a coach so what's your uh, you know perspective on on coaching in terms of that helping you with getting you in the right mood and 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 what's how, you know how would you even define what a coach is yeah it's interesting isn't it and I think different sports have really different attitudes to what a coach should or can do you know the, the opportunities and the limitations of a coach I mean rugby it would seem is one of the most overcoached sports that I'm aware of where you know, each rugby team seems to have almost as many coaches as players and each coach has a really, really specific, I guess it's a very technical, very structured sport. They have such a specific role to deliver. Then I guess the other end of the spectrum is a sport like surfing, which is something I'm quite interested in. And it seems like even the top, top surfers in the world, hardly any of them even have coaches. And it's just not something that people would expect to have. And thus there's not many coaches out there and again tennis it seems like a sport where again you have coaches but they're not seen as that relevant you know or that as, as important as other coaches as other sports and football I mean the manager is like this godlike figure within the supporters and the team so it varies so much and I guess it's all again it comes back to the culture of the sport the expectations of the athletes but personally it's it's hard to see how you can progress without having that coach you know having those experts around you would you distinguish between an instructor and a coach yeah that's a really good point actually that's a really good point I suppose it depends what it is you know if it's something like technical process of your sport 
you know, learning how to play a better cricket shot, for example, then of course you would need that technical input. But then the coach in our sport of rowing does so much more than that. And traditionally, in the old amateur days, they would do everything. You wouldn't have a psychologist, you wouldn't have a strength and conditioning coach, you know, in the gym, you wouldn't have a physiologist. The coach, he or she would just, they are, they're like the GP. They just do everything. Whereas now, they're almost like the conductor. You know, they pull in all these other experts to help them conduct the orchestra. So I think it, yeah, it, it, it definitely varies sport to sport and athlete to athlete. But also I think it's, it, it's kind of up to you what you want out of that relationship. You know, I mean, I liked working really closely with a coach. I really liked kind of sharing my thoughts, sharing my feedback, my ideas. Even if it was like, yeah, we tried that, it didn't really work, but this is that's cool. Let's let's talk about how we're going to move forward. To some people who just weren't that interested in having that relationship, we prefer to be more self-referencing, you know, and kind of almost finding things out for themselves. But I also think there's there's different roles that a coach should have. You know, some athletes love that almost big picture you know let's paint our vision let's paint our goal our dream let's aim for the stars then other people are like give me the excel spreadsheet i want the detail i want the data i want to, I want to be inside every single bit of this and again that's fine it's it's whatever you want and whatever your personality is but again the advantage of individual sports like tennis like athletics like swimming is you can kind of choose the coach that suits you whereas in squad sports team sports you generally just get given a coach. You just sort of hope they're right for you. Yeah, that's that's a good point, isn't it? Yeah, it's <laughs> quite a difference. Um, I mean, most motorsports is individual, apart from maybe where you're sharing a car off an endurance race or something like that. But yeah, it's it's just it's even that perspective of like. So the question is: Is this coach or is a coach going to make any difference to me? Are they going to help me drive faster? Which is a great question in a way because it's kind of assumed in more you know, wider sport, Olympic sport, that, that, that we need a, who's, who is the coach? It's not even like, do we need one? It's like, who is it? But that's a really good question though, isn't it? It's like, is the coach making any difference? And, and, and so when someone asked me who, who, who's never had a coach, you know, they're like, well, are they going to make a difference? Why, why would, what value are they going to add to me? I can, I'm working this kind of out on my own. Yeah. And I think that's probably a place where team sports can probably learn from individual sports in that, you probably should ask that question because it's just assumed a team will have a coach. But actually, a coach can be, they're not very good, they can be a destructive figure. And actually, then you then become more player-led, athlete-led. And, you know, some of these really high-ego, big personality super coaches can come in and start throwing their weight around. And yeah, in the short term, they'll get, get results. But in the long term, the best teams are athlete-led and are player-led. And the coach is almost just the, the light hand on the tiller rather than the person trying to, you know, kick the whole can down the road on their own. So a really great coach that I interviewed for my book is Mel Marshall, who coaches Adam Beatty, the, the multiple Olympic champion swimmer, one of the greatest swimmers ever. I just, I've just got to jump in there because I've not met her and it's really annoying because I was working with swimming and I really wanted to meet her because I, I, I'm really pleased you said that because in my experience, she's one of the best coaches uh, out there and, and sorry to all the other coaches that, uh, <laughs> who I know but um, yeah so that's really interesting so go on tell us about her I think she's amazing she was extremely insightful you can read all this in my book Mind Games available from Amazon <laughs> and all, all local independent booksellers um, but I mean Mel is very much well my interpretation of Mel is that she was very much of a, a new breed she's very much a modern coach in that she's very very athlete centred 
And I think, although you think, oh, surely all coaches are up at the centre, I would say no. Old-fashioned, traditional coaches, or often who aren't around anymore, you know, we're talking amateur days, we're talking yesteryear, are very much kind of quite ego-centred, you know, often quite themselves-centred, which, like I said, does get results in some ways. But so she said to me, look, I coach from the inside out. I look at the athlete first. I look at what, sorry, I look at the individual first. I look at the person first. What excites them? What motivates them? What scares them? Do they need information delivered in big picture chunks or in, in details? You know, what motivates them? What do they want to get out of their sport? Then I look at the athlete. Then I look at the swimmer. But she said, you know, the behaviors to be required to be a really successful swimmer are almost the last part of the puzzle. The first bit is, okay, who's this person? And so, yeah, she used this phrase, I coach from the inside out, which I think is, yeah, it's, it's a very modern and obviously extremely successful style of coaching to be very person-centred. Yeah, I suppose because if you come at it from the other way, from that instructional mindset, it's just like, well, this is, this is how to do this sport well mechanically. Exactly. Yeah, right, you want to swim faster, do these drills, do this, follow this training programme. 12 months' time, yeah, you'll be a better swimmer. Would In four years' time, will you be a better swimmer? Possibly not. <laughs> Got to be careful what I say here. But um, uh, one of the first conversations I had with a, a guy who you will know, Tomo, who's been on the show before, I was sat in his office and it's got some amazing pictures on the wall, all the gold medals and such like, and a bit naively, he was taking me through a training plan and and I, <laughs> I don't know what I was thinking, but I actually said, you don't know if that works. And he, he looked at me, <laughs> he looked at me, he didn't, oh, luckily I was on the other side of the table and uh, you know, he couldn't kick me or anything. But we'd only just met, so he's still trying to be polite. So he took me at face value and said, well, what do you mean? It's like, well, that's a kind of open loop process you've got that has worked, but you don't know if it's going to work on the next person because they're different and you haven't closed the loop. You see what I mean? So one of the things that we talk about quite a lot in engineering is do an experiment, but make sure you understand the you know what it didn't tell you as much as what it did, so that you can improve it next time. So you don't just repeat like it worked, but you need to know why it worked, or you try something it didn't work. You need to understand why it didn't work, and that's not always that easy or obvious, but that's the way you can improve. Yeah, I mean that's the thing about I think it's the thing about sport, though, isn't it? There's there's so many different variables. It can be really hard to pick out. Okay, that variable was the thing that worked and that variable was the thing that didn't work. And I suppose that's where reviewing your performances has to be critical. And that, to me, is where the best coaches really earn their dollar, is in having that ability to think strategically and say, okay, we just won that race, but why did we win? You know, these three things work. These three things actually didn't work. Those things need to change. We need to keep going with those first three things. Okay, we lost that race. We didn't do everything wrong. Within the fact we lost that race, the, again, these three things did work. These three things are the things that meant that we lost it. So having that strategic ability to look beyond the result and figure out what actually went on, I mean, to me, I think that's yeah, that's that's where that's where a coach earns their money, and that's that's what they're there for to think beyond the, the here and now. And that's where I guess you know Emma Raducanu has got this new coach, and that's been a really interesting process following how she's chosen her coach. And you would hope that I think it's a he he will give her that guidance that, okay, you're great at playing tennis, you focus on that, and I will almost cover the strategy. One of the things I've got here, what have I got down? So we talked about it a bit, about breaking down the process of going faster. So is that something you have done or you can think about doing or apply? You know, because we're talking about process, but 
Yeah, so what's specifically about that? So in racing, we talk or just track driving, we talk about, okay, well, how do I go quicker? Well, I'm on the throttle and then I'll get on the brakes. So what? why am I doing that? Yeah, so, so why am I getting on the brakes? Well, I just slow down for the corner and then, well, I want to go through the corner as quick as I can. You know, so I, I can break down the lap into activities that I'm doing as an athlete and then try and work on those and then try and improve the car uh, to give me more confidence to go quicker than I was before. So is there anything in, in sort of rowing that would be the equivalent? I mean, do you muck about with like the setup of the boat or, or whatever? And, the, you know, the, you've, is that a process that you've been through as well? Yeah, for sure. I think you you always look at your, your barriers. You know, if I'm not an Olympic champion, why am I not an Olympic champion? Okay, so I need to go fast over 2,000 metres, on a day in August every four years. Okay, within that, I need to go fast at the World Championships on one day in August every one year. In order to do that, I need to, you know, be selected into the best team I can within within the rowing team because there's the six different women's boats that I could potentially be selected into. So I want to be in the, you know, the top rank one with the best athletes. So, okay, how do I go as fast as I can? And I think in rowing, you'd always look at both power and technique, probably about 50% of each that contributes to boat speed. So it's power. Again, let's break that down. Okay, power is both physical power, you know, explosive power and endurance. So I need to work on my strength in the gym. I need to get my endurance up by doing the mileage on the water. And then my technique as well. So I just need to row better. How can I row better? How can I educate myself? How can I develop better boat boat feel? How can I get on better with my teammates? Within all of this, how can I recover better? So each session, I'm ready and ready to go and get the most out of myself. What's my nutrition? What's my sleep? So I think there's... There's not many areas you can't improve at all. And it's about prioritising, really. I was reading a bit about one of your perspectives about, you know, so in terms of athletes spend like 90% of their time practising and then 10% performing. In rowing, for sure, yeah. Yeah, and then, but then in other things like in business or whatever, it's, it's the opposite. And so... That's why, that's why I'm kind of asking about this. It's, it's like you're taking it for granted, right? All this preparation but, and breaking it down and thinking about it. But, but it will be new for people who aren't used to practising as much. Do, do you see what I mean? Yeah, exactly. And certainly also just having time to practise. Now, I mean, I know I'm not a professional athlete anymore or anything, but they like it. But if I want to go for a run, I won't, I won't warm up because I haven't got time. You know, I'll chuck my trainers on, go out the door, go out for as long as I can, come back. I'll probably be like in the shower with one of the kids pulling up my leg saying, Mommy, I want this, I want that. You know, I'm not I'm not stretching out of my run, I'm probably not hydrating properly, I'm just getting on with life again. Whereas when you're a professional athlete, not even an amateur, you're professional, you've just got time. If you want, want to stretch for 20 minutes after every session, you stretch for 20 minutes. You know, if you need a, a massage every afternoon, you get a massage. And obviously the British rowing team is luckily one of the best funded teams, Olympic sports in this country. So we have that capacity to use those support staff but but in some ways that mentality makes it harder because then the prep there's so much more pressure on you to perform you're sat on that start line you're like jesus there's so many people and so much money has been put beside i've got nowhere nowhere to hide i've got nothing to not that you would blame but i can't point the finger and say well i just didn't have enough time or enough preparation or a good enough phone you know all these other things are letting me down no no it's it's just you you're the reason. So it puts more, it puts, but it does put more emotional pressure on you. You know, you're part of an extremely expensive machine. So you need to deliver your part of the machine. Whereas back in the old amateur days, you were probably self-funded. You 
might have had less access to coaching equipment so the onus was wasn't so much on everything's directed towards you being as good as you can be so I'm not saying that the pressure is it's a good pressure or bad pressure I'm just saying the pressure is very different when you're professional to when you're an amateur but I think your point earlier about differentiating between the pressure and the stress is important so if if you if that pressure becomes too stressful then of course it's going to have a negative effect on your performance isn't it so if, if performance like extracting um your ge- genetic you know potential is the goal you know you need all the support you can get but and and uh, pressure but no stress or, or less stress or an appropriate amount of stress for you as an individual wow yeah. <laughs> which is, but then but then i think what you'll find is you'll find some people you know i can think of some athletes i've rode with who actually they would have much preferred the amateur days it just would have suited them down to the ground and you've got some people who actually would have really struggled with the amateur days because everything wasn't done perfectly so i think it's you know to an extent it's horses for courses Okay, so have you got have you got one or two things that you know, we can we can think about just to, in closing that you think wow you know these these two or three things that would be would be fascinating for people to think about or or to put into action and then just to sum up almost what we've been talking about. I think firstly, just just to be clear, what kind of person you are, you know, what do you want from your sport, what kind of emotional beast are you, where are you on that spectrum between you know someone who and I've lost what they do and, and the racing is a bonus to people who are really focused on winning. So when I was an athlete, you know, I wasn't there for the ride. I was there. I wanted to win medals. I was pretty serious about that. And, I, you know, I couldn't have come, turn back time and make myself into some kind of Bob Marley chilled out figure because that just, that just isn't me. So be clear who you are. Be clear what you want to get out of your sport. Um, your sport's there to serve you. It's not your master. You're the master of it. And then just set up your mind, your personality, you know, your expectations all around that. Don't try and be anyone else, you know, try and be yourself. And I think in order to be the best version of you, also just you're in control of more than you think you are. And I think, you know, we've already talked about the difference between being a professional athlete and amateur athlete. And I think in both instances, where professionals and amateurs, you feel like you're a bit out of control. When you're a professional, you feel like you're just part of this machine pushing you along. When you're an amateur, you feel like, oh, I haven't got time to do anything because I've got to work as well. I'm just training in the mornings and evenings and weekends. But actually, that attitude isn't the right attitude. You know, whatever the circumstances you're in, however many things you're juggling, you're in control of way more about your performance than you think you are. And just take control of those bits of your performance. And just, again, set your life up, set your mind up, set your emotions up to enable you to to perform at your best. So when I was an athlete, I used to say to myself, the only thing I can't control is my height. I'm never going to grow. Everything else, everything. There are a hundred different variables I can control. I'm never going to grow anymore in my mid-20s. That's done. Everything else, you know, my nutrition, my sleep, my recovery, my attitude, my relation with my teammates, relation with my coach, my power, my flexibility, my endurance, uh, my explosiveness, you know, how much I clean my boat, all these things within my control. I just can't control the fact I'm five foot ten. Honestly, that's it's absolutely fascinating. Well, look, thank you, thank you so much for taking the time. It's just a real honour to to listen to your story and and try and relate to that in some way, you know, with 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 motorsport and the uh, obviously the Minardi connection is a big tick, you know, for all of us. So, <laughs> but look, you know, thank you very much. No problem at all. Thanks for having me. This has been a real privilege to try and understand a bit more about our two different worlds.
What a privilege to have Annie on the show. So humble in her achievements, it's astounding really. As anyone who's occasionally tackled a rowing machine can attest, rowing is a brutal sport. You can also tell the competitive fires still burn brightly, no matter what she sets her mind to. For me, the big takeaway was the need for acceptance of oneself in order to achieve your best performance. Our goal is to drive faster, qualify or race better. They're all the same, yet it's okay to find our own path towards that. It was great to hear Annie's experience experimenting with different approaches to find the one that worked for her. And this goes for everything we try in motorsport. And I hope it gives you a little bit more confidence for next time too. You may know that at the end of season one, I wrote the Motorsports Playbook, a summary distilling the first 20 shows into nuggets of wisdom. I made the notes so that you don't have to. If you've not got it yet, go and grab yourself a copy from the website. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and visit us at yourdatadriven.com. Listener.